0: Facts are stubborn things. That was originally written by a French author, Alain Rene Lesage. And the point of that phrase, which I assume many of you are familiar with, is that whatever your preference is or your desires, whatever it is that you want to be true, you have to deal with Facts. Cold, hard facts. That's how we make decisions, or at least that's how we should make decisions. We gather as many facts as possible. We want hard data. We want to know the knowns so that we can make decisions in light of what is unknown. Now, facts are just one factor when you make a decision. Facts require interpretation. I think you know this, right? When a detective has to solve a murder mystery, they have to look at the facts. They've got to wade through the clues and then interpret what it is that they say to solve the case. Facts are necessary, but facts are not enough. What you do with the facts right in front of you is of what I would say is of greatest consequence in a situation. Now, we live in a time when for much of the world, religion is separated from facts we easily, even Christians, can be prone to think that the spiritual is unverifiable. It's unable to be investigated. It can't be interpreted. We just say, you've got to have faith. It's, it's said so easily in a way that it looks as faith as not connected to reason. Christianity is not just concerned with and based on facts. The facts make a demand on your life, on your faith. And the cold, hard fact of Christianity is that Jesus of Nazareth really, truly, factually was bodily raised from the dead. That's not a private truth, something to just help people get by. It is a public reality. It makes global demands. No real bodily resurrection from the dead. No Christian faith. No reason to be here this morning unless you just like seeing certain people. This morning, we look at the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. And we're doing that from John chapter 20, the first 10 verses. John 20, if you're new to the Bible, John is in the New Testament, chapter is the big number, the verses are the small numbers. And I'm going to read this text right now. John 20. 1 through 10. And if you need a Bible, they're in the back, and we would love to give you one to use or to take home if you don't have one. John 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Here's the very simple main point Jesus rose from the dead, and that demands your faith. Jesus rose from the dead. That demands your faith. So number one, very simply, Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, when we come to this obviously pivotal moment in the gospel, we don't come here in a vacuum. Just before this passage, two weeks ago, we saw the care and the detail that John took to demonstrate that the very real Jesus really died. Real blood and real water came out of his dead body, and people saw it. Joseph asked for the body. Nicodemus anointed the body. His body was laid in a new garden tomb where no other body had been laid. And John meant for the reader to see, there's no question, this man died. In your Bible, it's the next phrase in the next chapter, but obviously in reality, it's two days later. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb early first day of the week. Now, John, with the other gospel writers, all mark this as the first day of the week, the first day. A new week, a new beginning. Something brand new is happening in the world. Other gospel writers mention the other women. John only mentions Mary Magdalene. Now remember, Jesus was not buried in a common grave where the other two criminals crucified with Him would have been buried, where they would have been buried because they had been crucified. Mary Magdalene knows where the body is because we know from John 19, verse 25, she was near the cross when He was being crucified. She saw Him die. She saw... Where he was buried, and she came while it was still dark. She came to finish burial preparation. And what does she see? A stone taken from the tomb. Verse two. She runs to Simon Peter, the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John, the author of the gospel. And she says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Notice, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. What does she mean? Grave robbing was common in those days. That's what's on Mary's mind. They are the grave robbers who presumably stole his body. And then notice the we who do not know. That's the other women who we know from the other Gospels were with Mary. I want you just to stop at this moment and notice, at the very least, the courage and the faithfulness of these women. They were with Jesus at the cross, they were with Jesus and are here with Jesus in His death. In this gospel, crowds have come and they've gone. They've been so fickle. Not these women. When He was hanging there on the world's most obvious symbol of public humiliation and rejection, the very object that their own law, the Torah said, indicated He was under the curse, At that moment, in his humiliation, these women stayed. They have sided with Jesus, even in his death. Here are the facts as John presents them Judas betrayed him, Peter denied him, these women identified with him, even as he died. They are going to honor the man that the world has publicly humiliated in his death. Where would the church be without women? What I love about these facts is that these women are engaged in what is nothing more than just ordinary faithfulness motivated simply by their love for Jesus. And this is early in the account, but I hope you see, one, how highly the Lord values women. The world, especially then, did not. God does. From His own unsuspecting mother Mary to now the unsuspecting, and we know from other passages, the previously demon-possessed, Mary Magdalene, God honors women and God delights to put women at the very center of His global purposes in Jesus Christ. And then too, see this. How much the Lord can and delights to use ordinary, faithful people. As you grow in love for Jesus and in understanding His love, you can't help but live faithfully in following Jesus. So aim for more love for Jesus and faithfulness will follow that. And then as you live in very ordinary faithful ways, the Lord delights to use your faithfulness for extraordinary ends you cannot imagine. Ends you could have never brought about in your own power, in your own strength. These women didn't plan to be part of the most significant weekend, the most significant fact of history. They simply planned to be faithful. Don't underestimate faithfulness time after time after time. Just ordinary plotting here in your discipleship, With us together as a church, it all adds up. It's faithfulness that pushes the gospel ball forward. It's faithfulness in the highs. It's faithfulness in the lows. It's the same with us together. That's how churches faithfully plod. Sunday mornings, prayer services, members meetings, faithfully present, encouraging, building up. You know, everyone here, all of you, In some way, here in this country, are being faithful to something, to somewhere. When you leave, what is it that your faithfulnesses will leave behind? Don't discount faithfulness. Don't discount what a heart growing in love for Jesus will lead you to do. We also must notice that resurrection from the dead didn't even cross these women's minds. They did not announce resurrection to Peter and John. They were announcing theft to them. Their greatest concern, the body's gone. We have no idea where it is. That was their greatest surprise. That was their greatest concern. And yet the Lord had more than provided the solution. So what was a problem for them, their vantage point was from God's, the unfolding purposes in His eternal plan. The same is true for you in Jesus Christ. That circumstance in your life that so perplexes you, weighs you down, that you didn't expect that you're not sure about, it is pulling you, Christian, toward God's great purposes in Christ for you and for the world. You may not, like them, understand all of it yet. But you can be sure God can be trusted in the midst of it. So when you come to something you don't like or that you can't understand just because you don't understand how God could act in that way does not mean He doesn't have an eternally good reason for doing so. Don't jump to conclusions about God and His purposes and ways simply because you don't understand or see everything from your very limited perspective. Be content to wait. Look for evidences of God's grace and His goodness, even in the midst of that circumstance. As a church, we've mourned with Karen and Caleb and the death of Karen's sister Julie in the last week's. And, of course, it immediately raised this great problem that Caleb would not be able to go with her to the United States for the funeral because he he didn't have a visa. He'd been denied twice to enter. And his next visa appointment wasn't on the schedule until 2025. And so when she died, not only did the Lord open the door for a visa, Caleb, praise the Lord, was given a 10-year multi-entry visa. I share that with you as a congregation, one, because you've loved them so well in the midst of all of this, an unspeakable grief and tragedy. And two, to illustrate how it is so like the Lord to work in circumstances you would never ask Him for, to accomplish those purposes you would never expect. He takes His people through tragedy and through darkness He means for his people to see clearly, I'm with you right in the midst of it, even though you don't understand it all. Mary Magdalene, the others must have only seen darkness that morning. He was crucified. Now his body has been taken. Darkness. Oh God, where are you? What are you doing? They couldn't fathom that God had accomplished resurrection from the dead. Never forget, never doubt how much greater, how higher God's ways are than your ways or my ways. How unfathomably wise and good God really is. Facts so clearly tell us this was not a grand conspiracy to make up a resurrection story just to keep this thing alive. These are real reactions because it's how it really played out. And so Peter and John, when they hear the news, they go running to the tomb. Notice they did not stop Mary and say, no, Mary, he must have been raised. No, verse four, they take off running together. But the other disciple, that's John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, notice the text. It could have easily moved from verse 3 to verse 5, and it could have said, when they got to the tomb looking into it. There was clearly something between John and Peter that John wanted to forever own Peter in Scripture that he beat him in that race to that tomb that morning. He says it twice in the text. I think John wanted to say he could claim humility because he referred to himself as the other disciple, but there is no mistaking what John wanted this rebellious world to know. He's faster than Peter. That's a text that perplexes me. No, seriously. John is younger than Peter. And really the reason he includes it is because he he wants you to know every detail because he wants you to believe this account is credible that he saw all of this. This is factual. He reached the tomb first. Verse 5, he saw the linen cloths. He didn't go in because he's deferring to Peter, who's older, and he was more prominent as a disciple. Peter went into the tomb. Verse 6, again, he sees the linen cloths lying there. Verse 7, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, folded up by itself. The linen cloths Are mentioned twice. Both of them saw them, and the face cloth folded up. Obviously, John does this on purpose. One, he's demonstrating he saw all of this with his own eyes. It's such details. More importantly, the fact that the linen cloths were lying there, the face cloth was folded up, demonstrates this was not a grave robbery. No grave robber would ever take the lengthy amount of time needed to unbind the cloths and then to fold up the face cloth. Also proof that the disciples didn't steal the body to fake a resurrection. If the body were robbed, the cloths and all the spices with them would have been the very stuff the robbers were after. No, they're there, and the face cloth is neatly folded because the one who was buried in that tomb left him there. He took the time to fold the face cloth. You know, when you read this gospel, interestingly, it's not the first time that John has shown interest in this sort of thing. He showed interest in the linen cloths in the other resurrection story in this gospel, back in John 11, of the raising of Lazarus after Jesus screamed, Lazarus, come out, we read in John 11:44, 44. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus raised, yes, but he comes out wrapped with a linen cloth. He was bound by them. He needed them unbound, not Jesus. He unbound himself. Just facts, initial facts. Paul does give some interpretation, 1 Corinthians 15, 44, when he says, just as there is a natural body, so there is a spiritual body. What is sown naturally is raised spiritually, Lazarus raised, but to a mortal, natural body. Jesus raised to a spiritual, glorified body. It's a physical body, but it's of a different and greater glory than the mortal bodies we inhabit. He needed no one to unbind his cloths that bound him. I couldn't help but keep thinking about the face cloth. As he rose from the dead, his first work to put in order that place of death that was the embodiment of the old creation. As he rose from the dead, his first work was not to leave a mess but to beautify that tomb that morning. And What a grace that Peter is there. He so prominently failed that weekend. The first of the twelve to see the cloths, the empty tomb. Who would put Peter there if this was made up? He had failed. Well, Jesus would. In His kingdom, with this king, women featured, used prominently. In this kingdom, with this king, those who failed Jesus in ways they could never imagine there. In this kingdom, with this king, who went to the cross, all of our worldly assumptions and expectations are turned on their head. Don't forget that Jesus, the King, has determined to call and to use ordinary, unexpected people. He doesn't give up on you as quickly as you and I are so ready to give up on each other. To give up on ourselves. Peter was the first one to see the linen cloths. I think the ones who are most aware of how they failed him are the ones who are most prepared to fall at his feet and worship him when you see him in resurrection glory. John also went into the tomb. We read in verse 8, he saw and he believed. John saw the facts and the facts were undeniable. Somehow Jesus had gotten up from the dead and left that grave. John saw and believed. We're not told that about Peter. It will come later for Peter, but we know John did. John has done this in his gospel. He connects seeing and believing. Turn back to John 1. John 1. I want you to see this. Verses 48 through 51. Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel. And Nathaniel said to him, "How do you know me?" Jesus answered him, "Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you." Nathaniel answered him, "Rabbi, you are the Son of God; you are the King of Israel." Jesus answered him, "Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these." And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is a gospel where the question is, who sees Jesus rightly and so who believes in him? Nicodemus went to him at night, could not see who he was and left Jesus out into the dark and unbelief. The next chapter, the Samaritan woman, surprisingly, she has seen fully by Jesus all of her sins are forgiven. And she goes away seeing and telling everyone, this man told me everything I've ever done. She believed. And then in John 9, 35, the blind man whom the Pharisees cast out because he had been healed, Jesus found him and said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he said, who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, you've seen him. And he who is speaking to you is he. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. The blind man saw him and believed. The Pharisees who had sight did not see. And they rejected him. And then there was that great moment when these Greeks came to Philip. And they said, sir, we would wish to see Jesus. John 12 When the disciples told him, he immediately began to speak of the hour when the Son of Man will be lifted up. He told the crowd, the light will only be in the world a little longer. While you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. And although he had done many signs among them, they still did not believe in him. To see Jesus rightly in this world is to believe in Him. It's to receive eternal light. It's to become a son of light. John, when he entered the tomb, he saw and he believed. And when we read the other Gospels, some focus on the women at the tomb. John focuses on Peter and himself. John And he does so because John's interest is to prove that Jesus is legally innocent. Remember, it is not Jesus. It is the world that's actually on trial in this gospel. From the wrong sentencing of Jesus, from the chief priest, from Pilate, the world is guilty. And John's concern here is to show these two men saw, they witnessed the empty tomb, and their testimony was legally admissible in a court of law. So John means for you to see that the facts are legally credible, and the eyewitnesses legally admissible. The evidence demands that you believe. Now my prayer is for you as a Christian, this strengthens your faith. Jesus really was raised from the dead. Your faith in the risen Christ is the most reasonable and right place to believe. It feels like we're living in dark days. The world feels like it's getting darker and darker. Your faith is not in vain. In this universe, Jesus of Nazareth went into a grave and came out of it. Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the fact. And it means that all the events, even the ones in this region, are not what are ultimate. Christ is. And the fact that Christ has been raised means that your faith is not futile. You are not in your sins. For you as a Christian, when is the last time that you thought about what is true because Christ was raised from the dead? I mean, just take a moment to consider a few things. Christ has raised you up if you believed in Him and seated you with Him in heavenly places. That the immeasurable power that was at work through God in Christ is now at work toward us who have believed. That in Christ somehow all things are and will work for our good. That right now there is an undefiled, unfading inheritance kept in heaven for you who are being guarded by God's power for this salvation ready to be revealed in the last time are you aware of the fact of the risen Christ whom you do not see or all the stuff you do see either you believe what you're seeing is ultimate or the one you do not see remember the empty tomb is not a private therapeutic help to you it's public truth This fact cannot be hidden away in a corner. And if you're not a Christian, or if you're investigating the claims of Jesus, what do you do with the facts? That Jesus lived, that He was crucified, that He was buried, and He was raised. That He is actually qualified to be the Son of God in power and to forgive your sin. Very real sin, factual sin that you've committed against the God who knows you and made you, to whom you will give an account for your life. The cross means God's right and good wrath against sin and sinners has been satisfied. And the resurrection means you don't have to stay in your sin. Do you see? Will you believe? Come to Jesus in faith. Believe in Him. You're resting your faith in something, in someone. The risen Jesus is the most credible and the lasting place to put your faith. He will save you. John means for you to be so sure this isn't made up. Look at verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture's Notice they didn't go to that tomb this morning. that morning with an understanding from the Old Testament, which the Old Testament demands that the Messiah would rise from the dead. And so the facts are very clear. Jesus rose from the dead. But John means for you not just to see He rose from the dead, but also according to the Scripture, Jesus must rise from the dead. That's the second point. Jesus must rise rise from the dead. Verse 9. They did not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. So this is now facts being interpreted and clues being put together. John either means by this the whole Old Testament Scripture's or a specific scripture. Now, the Old Testament, the vast majority of the Bible, is filled with shadows, types. The New Testament comes to us in full light. Augustine very famously said the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. That is obviously true, given how unexpected this was to Jesus' own disciples that morning. It's only later, Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, that Jesus teaches them everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and He said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Well what could we learn from the Old, Testaments, the Old Testament that might warrant this? Well we learn first, death is under the authority and power of God. It was God who determined when death would enter His world. He told the man and the woman in Genesis 2, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So death entered and death reigns. And then it's not long after that in Genesis 5 when we have this chapter of death. If you go and read it, you will just see that it is a drumbeat. And he died. And he died. And he died. Death reigns in the world, except with Enoch. We have hope. Genesis 5:24: Enoch walked with God, and instead of "He died," we read, "He was not, for God took him." It's not a resurrection, but he was, by God's power, kept from death. And it at least causes us to ask the question, if God can keep someone before death, can he keep them after? Death is God's judicial sentence on mankind. It's a consequence of man's rebellion against God, and it's under God's authority. What else do we learn in the Old Testament? Well, the God we meet in the Old Testament again and again creates life in barren, dead wombs. He delivered his people in the Exodus from exile. It was a kind of raising them up from death when there was no hope that they would be raised up. And of course, the prophets Elisha and Elijah, by the power of God, raised the dead in their ministries. God reveals his power over death, dead wombs, dead people. And then there's some text in the Old Testament. Psalm 16.10, which Laura read to us, David expresses his hope that God will not abandon him to Sheol or let His Holy One see corruption. Hosea 6, the prophet is speaking out his hope for Israel in exile, and he writes, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. He's not writing directly about the Messiah, but... Israel's death and resurrection in exile would find its fulfillment in the Messiah who embodied Israel and was raised up, not in exile under a foreign power, but in the exile under the power of death. There's shadows. It's dark. There's patterns. There's this trajectory in which things are moving. And Isaiah, who writes of this mysterious servant who by his Sin-bearing work will ensure that the Holy One of Israel can dwell among His people. He writes, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's Isaiah 53.10. If you want to look that up. It's the clearest prediction of the Messiah's resurrection in the Old Testament. By his death, the servant Messiah will be numbered with the transgressors, many accounted righteous. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The servant will be satisfied. He'll see the end of his work. Now, John, when he went into that empty tomb that morning, did not understand all that. But after... As Jesus said, the coming of the Spirit who would bring to remembrance all that he taught and teach, him, teach them all things, John's eyes would have been opened to all that was concealed in the Scripture to light such that he would in rightly interpret he must rise from the dead. Why must he rise? To prove he is the true and final Passover lamb whose blood is enough to cover the sin of his own people, to prove he is God's son revealed to the world, who speaks the words of God, who reveals the true God to the world. And he must rise because his resurrection was at the very center of God's plans and purposes for the world. The fact of the empty tomb means, rightly interpreted, that the world is now on a collision course toward a new creation. There is nothing that this old world can do to stop it. He must rise again because at the very center of God's plans for His universe is to give a bride to His Son. And you as a Christian, if you're trusting Him, have been swept up into this. That's where you're going. Because of the resurrection, your life counts. Your faithfulness counts far more than you can imagine in this world. A few weeks, you may or may not know this, but here's a little insider tip. It's about to be mission conference season for evangelical Christians. I think conferences are great and fine, I really do. One concern I have for these, even some that I know people well in, is an appeal that can be made in these conferences especially to cross an ocean or to do something for the gospel or missions to make your life count. That is the last reason I want anyone, anyone to do missions or to do something for the sake of the gospel. That's the last reason I want a Christian motivated to do anything Because the cross and the resurrection means your life counts more than you can fathom. The world is running itself to death to prove my life counts. It matters. The cross and the resurrection free you from all of that. It means your life is counted in Christ, righteous. So you who are in Christ are free to count everything as loss. The cross and the resurrection means that your significance is not in what you do, but in what has been done. And The resurrection means not just the universe, but also your life is headed for glory. As you're faithful, you're being used for God's great glory and His great goal, and that can't be undone. So go risk, obey, cross, be faithful in the responsibilities that God has given you. Because, in a whole new way on a cosmic level that we can't fathom your life counts for God's eternal purposes in Christ John and Peter Mary they could have had no idea the significance of what was happening that ordinary morning they just were seeing cold facts they had not interpreted them John believed Peter didn't make sense of them all of that comes in time We're in a different position, a privileged position, seeing on the other side of it. But you also can't see the significance of how God will use your ordinary faith and faithfulnesses in his globally significant purposes. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead means nothing is wasted. And that you're pressing on today and this week, it matters. Because there's nothing that will ever put Jesus back in that tomb. This account gives us facts. That on that particular Sunday, Jesus' body was nowhere to be found. It's only by John's comment that he must rise from the dead according to the scriptures that the facts are interpreted. And it's the resurrection that must interpret how you see the facts of this world and of your life. Jesus rose from the dead, and that changes everything. It means that to God, your life, your faith, and your faithfulness right now counts forever.